again, if you look in your manual, you'll find S1 is your first lecture, and that's where we are, orphans versus sons. Orphans versus sons. This lecture on, really, sonship begins by looking at the book of Galatians. And I would invite you to turn with me to chapter 1, and we'll just read verses 3 through 5. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And then the next passage I'm going to read is Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. In many ways, this is the heart of the theme of sonship in the book of Galatians. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. And then the last part of the book I want to read, Galatians 6, verse 14. Galatians 6, verse 14, May I never boast, may I never glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's our theme. You are no longer a slave by the power of the cross, which alone deserves glory, because it alone could change you from being a slave or a, an orphan into a son. I think the key question in a practical way that the book of Galatians brings to us is this one. What happened to all your joy? Chapter 4, verse 15, Paul asks, what happened to all your joy? And I relate to that because I must confess there have been many times I've lost my joy. When I was first converted, I was reading the book of Ephesians, and in that book, I came through the opening part of it, chapter 1, and discovered how deeply alienated I was from it. And I said to myself, who does God think he is anyway? Uh, that is, he seems to have all the power and all the might and all the glory, and don't I get any? And... Uh, the answer came back very sharply into my consciousness, God, and who do you think you are anyway? And the answer came back, God. And with that conviction that came to my heart, I was cut to the quick, and suddenly I knew a God of all grace who had changed me, and I was filled with incredible joy. And in that passage, I read about sonship. 
If you look at that passage with me, it's very close to Galatians. You'll see there in verse 5, he predestinated us or he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. It's the same word used in Galatians 4, 5, where it says we received adoption to sonship. Well, this word gripped me for a time. I had much joy, but after I had a great deal of training and Christian experience and was praised by many people, a great deal of my joy had gone. I had a fine, careless rapture, if I may speak of use Browning's line in describing a singing bird. And uh, somewhere along the line, that faded away. And it came to a point where I realized there was something wrong with me when I was planting the first church in California. I was driving down the street to make a call, and as I came along the street, I, I heard some noises from a drive-in across the street. It's pretty loud stuff, and I looked, and here was a white-haired old lady carrying a market basket down the street behind her. And these boys, oh, eight or ten of them, sitting on uh, tables in the drive-in, were throwing stones at her, and catcalls, and... I couldn't believe my ears. I rolled down my window and being a good boy scout from Oregon, you know, where we helped old ladies across the street, I was enraged, you know. I'm in all my training in the Fifth Commandment and all the rest. You know, I, for years I'd been an atheist and a wild kid myself, but I forgot all about that. And uh, anyway, I turned in uh, to the drive-in and then I had this moment of fear I decided for a moment maybe I should get a hamburger and a milkshake and <laughs> rethink this. And uh, <laughs> the, I'd never done anything like this before. But my indignation was even stronger than my fear. I went over to the boys and uh, God gave me graciousness. I didn't pray, but I, I just went over there. I really think of my own strength, but God did help me. And I asked them... Uh, had they ever heard of the Fifth Commandment? And uh, it was news to them. They'd never heard of any Fifth Commandment. And honor your father and your mother, and that applied to older people and authorities. No, it was news. So I started to preach to them, and I was in a strange predicament because as I preached, I couldn't figure out how to stop. The reason I couldn't figure out how to stop, I was afraid what they might do when I stopped. So here I was, you know, how do I end this sermon? It was enough to make a Presbyterian pastor pray. And uh, I was really close to the edge. And uh, finally, in desperation, I said what afterwards I realized wasn't true. But at the moment, I, I didn't even think about it. I pointed to our church steeple down the street and I said, I expect to see all of you in church on Sunday. No, I really didn't. <laughs> and the leader came in and one of his uh, cohorts on Sunday, and uh, to my amazement. And I, I really didn't know what to do with them. I knew the church didn't know what to do with them. And I didn't really have any joy to offer them. I had a lot of preoccupation with ministry, with myself, with my family, my finances, all the rest, the things that we're typically into. And there wasn't any overflow of joy. And what had happened 
partly because of my theological studies, but partly because of my tradition, but mostly just because of old-fashioned hardening of heart, I had drifted into isolation, into a kind of an orphan spirit, a kind of disconnectedness from grace that wasn't there when I was a young Christian. Does this make any sense to you? Have you ever had experiences like this where God richly blessed you at some point and then instead of going on with it, you seemed to meander and the sense that you had were, was that you certainly were not, you were not in partnership with the Father, but you really were more in partnership with the things you could see, the things were in front of you. Well, that was really what happened to me. I was really right in my visceral reaction with the law. I mean, I, I think what I did, God really blessed it, except all I gave them was the law. And all I was expressing was my own indignation at their breaking the law, and not any sense of indignation over my own breaking the law. I didn't say, fellows, look, I'm a lot like you. I used to be just like you. Now, I didn't do that kind of thing, but still, I did probably things that were worse in God's eyes. Well, what had happened to all my joy? I'd forgotten the power of grace, the joy of sonship. And really, when we begin to think about sonship, and we're told there in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, that we're no longer under law, that we are now no longer slaves, we're no longer condemned, we're no longer powerless, but we have fullness and life. Well, that no longer then is really God's normal for the Christian. This is what he has for us. And so when Paul asks the Galatians, what happened to all your joy, he comes with a very strong word. It's not just ordinary joy, but just all the fullness of life that God has given you, the strength that flows out of the gospel and out of the spirit, that flows from the intercession of Christ. Well, I have to admit that I did not have that freedom. I didn't have that sense of favor. I didn't have that fervor. I had, did not have that willingness to be corrected by my Father. Those are all the marks of the Son of God. But you see, the promise is you are no longer a slave. Or John 14, 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you without the Spirit. I will not leave you without coming to you. I am the resurrected one. And therefore... Think deeply, he says, are you trivializing the gospel? Are you trivializing, trivializing the foundations of your faith? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 13. He took upon himself the burden which was ours to set us free, for freedom has he set us free. Where did it all go? Well, I think we can get some very helpful insight by just thinking of it this way. An orphan or somebody who in some way has lost touch with the grace of God is anyone who in isolation from the promises has developed a small view of Christ and a small view of the gospel. And somebody who is walking in faith 
and who's living in the promises is someone who has a large Christ and a large gospel. You see, today we function almost as though we had immunity to the Holy Spirit's criticisms. We're very critical people. We glory in our ability to judge, assess, to evaluate. We evaluate everything. But you see, God is the one who is alone entitled to evaluate, and he evaluates you and me. And he says, I took you from the eternal wrath, and I brought you to myself. And you didn't do a thing in it. It was all my glory. God forbid that you should glory, that I should glory, except in the cross of Christ, which brought about my salvation and keeps it alive and makes it full. And the Son is the one who knows that, who has set his mind or her, her mind as a daughter on pilgrimage out of obedience to this Christ. If we begin to think of examples of this, I'd like to call to your attention something I did when I was speaking at a church planters conference. I was trying to figure out what I thought would be just the most appropriate thing to have these people do. It was um, in Orlando, Florida about three years ago. I thought, well, these people would be just delighted with this assignment. So I broke them up into small groups and I said, your assignment is to preach the gospel to each other. And they looked completely befuddled. The whole program broke down at that point. And they said, well, doesn't Jack think we're saved? Well, the thought then did occur to me. <laughs> you guys, you're that cut off in the gospel, you don't know what it is to preach the gospel to yourself. That's, that's what Paul is always doing. If you, if you read Paul, sometimes his letters are hard to read some because you wonder where his thought's going. Well, usually it's because he mentions the words cross or Christ and Christ, and he explodes, and he's way up here in the air for a couple of chapters. Then, oh, yeah, I was back, and he goes back to his central point. You can make his it hard to read, but for Paul, the gospel was deep, deep music. It was propositions about historical facts. It wasn't some made-up myth. It was a historical reality, but it was a historical reality set to music. And I just said, brothers, you lost the music. Isn't it precious to you that Jesus died? Isn't it precious to you that when the gospel came into your life, you died and you rose again? Man, and doesn't it revive you every day? You see, that, that hymn that Charles Wesley gave us that we sang before the conference began, Arise, my soul, arise, and shake off thy guilty fears. And how do you do it? Why the bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Isn't that where it is? My surety 
stands before the throne. What does he do there? He pleads on the basis of his shed blood and righteousness for me. I live out of that life of the gospel. Well, man, this is where it is. I want to use now a second illustration. I was over in North Carolina, that noble American state, which is beautiful and many good things are going on there. I believe there's a touch of revival on many lives in North Carolina. And I was talking to a young, uh, young lady, and I interviewed her. I wanted to find out why the sonship materials had helped her. And there's really nothing special as far as packaging is concerned. Uh, we're a little bit on the weak side if you've tried to figure out the connection between the tapes and, and the lectures. I mean, sometimes the tapes follow the lectures, sometimes they don't. And, and all a few little oddities like that. I can't imagine why anyone would want to listen to them. But a lot of people do. And the reason they do, she said, look, I had come into the Christian church through being evangelized. And the effect of it was good. I mean, they gave me an introduction to the Book of Romans. And I followed the method. And uh, effort was over. I believed. And they said, now you have it all. And he said, the only problem with that was I didn't have it all. He said, I'm not even sure I had a good beginning. She said, I was performance-oriented. I was perfectionistic, critical, a lot of evil in my heart. And when I thought about faith, I really meant trying harder. I didn't really know what it was to believe the gospel, to rest in it, to live out of it. And it was almost like it was a charade or a kind of a, all was true. She said there wasn't anything missing that was not true, but except it had never been presented to me in a way that spoke to where I really lived, where I really sinned. And you and I live in an age of crisis we cannot use in our day and age the evangelistic methods that were successful in the past. They must be modified. Let me give you an example of some of the things I've taken from George Barnett's book, What Americans Believe. Six out of ten American adults believe strongly that this passage is found in Scripture. God helps those who help themselves. The most widely known scripture text in the United States is God helps those who help themselves. And the intriguing thing is not necessarily strongly, but four out of five evangelicals believe it. That is, they may not believe it's in the Bible, but they, they said, yeah, they agreed with that, at least somewhat. Now, allowing for misunderstandings and whatever about what is meant by it, Barna says it means... Basically, it's my duty to control my destiny. And that's what being an orphan is all about. Or even maybe being a non-Christian. That I'm a little God and I can run my life. And if one does not challenge that in one's own life, and in the lives of those you evangelize, we're just filling the church up with people who believe God helps those who help themselves. He said this is tremendously alarming. He said, 
77% of evangelicals now believe that, quote, human beings are basically good. I have read that passage so many times I can't believe it. Believe it. I've been tempted to call him up and say, how in the world did you get those figures? If that's true, we have an evangelical disaster on our hands of major proportions. 53% believe, these evangelicals, there are no absolute truth or truths. And among evangelicals, 56% believe the purpose in life is to enjoy yourself and have personal fulfillment. And you think you have an easy road ahead to evangelize, to reach out in this kind of a world? Well, this woman was reflecting the fact that people were evangelizing without dealing with her idols. And the central idol in our culture is this one, you know, doing your own thing, making your own decisions, make a decision for Jesus. But you see, the whole point of making a decision of Je to, for Jesus is that you give up your decision-making. That is, you'll still make decisions, but you're going to do them under his lordship. And that's the difference. And you cannot throw that out the window. And no wonder then, when sonship comes, that the reason it has strength in it is we confront people with the fact, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think. So we're here to encourage you. Cheer up, you're going to be telling the world. You're a lot worse than you think. The best news you ever heard is original sin is true. And it's true. If the curse is true, then the grace is true. The love of God is shallow unless there is a depth to which it reaches, compelled by our God's own justice and holiness in the gift of His Son. We had an elder candidate that came before our Young New Life Church, Presbyterian Church, when it was very, very first days, and he had so much promise. He is a graduate of Bob Jones University, graduate of Westminster Seminary. I think he'd even been one of my students there. But at any rate, whether he had that privilege or not, I don't know. But <laughs> he wasn't much boast about what happened. I confess that I had been publicly, I'd gone through a period of severe temptation. And uh, thank God that he delivered me from it. And uh, guess what all the men in the church thought was my temptation? Anyone guess? To commit adultery. Well, it wasn't the temptation, at least at the moment. <laughs> that was, temptation was entirely different. But I never did tell these men who were brought to repentance that this is what, it was something different. But this elder candidate was simply broken by that confession. And he said... I have all this knowledge of the Bible. I'm a graduate of these esteemed places. But I've been filled with condemnation, pride, sexual lust. And I think I just got converted. 
Well, here he was, not only an orphan uh, as a believer, uh, alienated from promises by a lot of unbelief and fear and pride, but he was perhaps really a non-Christian, as he said. And what a change grace made in his life as he moved from a real radical orphanage into sonship. And see the joy and his usefulness in the church of God that followed. Marvelous, marvelous. Well, these are the issues before us. Sons and daughters. And ladies, when we call you uh, sons, please don't misunderstand. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, that all who are in Christ, male and female, bond or free, are sons of God. And it simply means there are no second-class believers, that everyone is a full heir, that you're under the favor of God forever, it's all yours. And uh, so usually I say sons and daughters, but sometimes I just say sons. Don't feel left out if I do that. It's not because I'm a, uh, a male chauvinist. It's rather that uh, I'm just saving a little time. Now, there's an inevitable consequence of this. If we understand the key to the sonship is not trivializing the gospel, especially by not trivializing our sin, we ought to expect the gospel would have power that I don't believe it's having at present. Back in 1770 in London, a man named William Romaine, uh, in his childlike faith, he said he knew a solution to the problem of crime and robbery in London. And he wrote this in a pamphlet. And it was an appeal to Parliament to provide the money for a publication of teaching materials on the gospel. That these were to be taken through to all the murders and all the robbers and that would change them. He says, at the present time, you're just adding new laws, making them more severe, and you haven't changed anybody. You've inhibited them. You've only revealed their criminals. You can't change them. But if you teach them all the gospel, then we'll cut crime in London. That sounds like a ridiculous idea, doesn't it? Really. Except people like Charles Wesley and John Wesley and George Whitfield have been doing it and have been working. Well... How are we going to get this moving in our lives? And I think we have to begin to look at the Bible, really, in terms of our own tradition. And we need to be hooking our faith into the promises, not into appearances. We come to a church and a society that is highly secularized. You know, the great danger is missionaries go overseas and they secularize people. Americans are deeply secularized. Western Europeans are too. And what it means is we simply live by appearances as though this world is permanent. Our desire life is centered on this world. I read these books on self-esteem. And why, why do they trouble me? I come away from them saying, why does this bother me so much? This is a lot of wisdom here, a lot of help of one kind and another. But the answer that bothers me is nobody seems to understand the greatness and the power of the gospel and that it's preparing us for a life of challenge and dying and suffering. 
So what we're really giving you is the second point, not only cheer up, you're worse than you think, but cheer up, come and die. It's a great way to come to life. Die to the spirit of this age. The glory we read in chapter 1 in Galatians is this, that God in the giving, the Father in the gift of His Son rescues us from this present evil age for the glory of God. And He does it by the cross. And when we have this then, it's a power. Now, the promises, they don't go to what we see, but they go to what God has said. But the gospel itself and the gift of the Spirit, this is the central promise. If you look at Galatians, those go together. Justification by faith, the spirit of adoption, I'm sorry, justification by faith, and adoption unto sonship, and the Spirit. That's right there in verses 4 through 7 in Galatians 4. Those three things. Justification by faith, adoption to sonship, and then the gift of the Spirit, crying, Abba, Father. Well, how do you hook into that? You hook into it by faith in the promises. When I had lymphoma, and it seemed to be that I was in danger of death, if not dying, this was not just a comfort to me, it carried me through. This promise came to me, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it just came right into my unconsciousness and carried me day after day until I was alive. The promises, we believe them. We hook our faith into them. Not what we see, but what God has promised. What He's turned into historical reality. Now, Jesus is now invisible, but I see him clearly in the message of the cross. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the mirror of the gospel, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, the Spirit. As I hear the gospel, as I meditate upon it, as I claim it and appropriate it as the central reality, then my faith grows and I'm able to forget about myself and to see what God is doing in his kingdom. And as I forget about myself, as I die to this age, I begin to discover, hey, you know, I think I'm happy. I better be careful. This is getting to be serious, you know. But I'm happy. What are you going to do with that? Well, my, don't fight it off. If you get attacks of sanity or joy, don't resist them. Right? Get infected. Get the disease. Because it comes out of grace. Well, if you look here, this idea, by faith I am no longer a slave or an orphan. How does it work? Well, a lot of it just builds out of just... The awareness, I have been loved. And it's not just legal, and we're going to talk about the legal foundation briefly, but it is the love of a God who loved me so much that he caused his son to take upon himself my sin and my shame. I don't know whether you ever watched TV during the 1950s, back when there was real television. 
you know. But there was something called Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, real good stuff, you know, and at least for people who have a sort of a bizarre taste for things. In one of the programs, there was a, a businessman, we call him Mr. Brown. Something happens to him chemically at home, and he comes to his office, and as he goes in to, uh, to say good morning to everyone, uh, the secretary greets him, and she says, so, good morning, Mr. Brown. Uh, you look very well today, uh, and I hope uh, you're feeling all right, so on, so on. And then he hears from inside of her this voice. Oh, that old meanie. Boy, does he look grouchy again. I hope he's not as nasty as he was back last Friday. And he goes around the office and he greets everyone. He's a very polite person. And he keeps hearing from within people, not just what they say, but what they're thinking. And it's terrible. One person after another exposes him as a totally self-centered, vicious man. And in horror, he runs into the bathroom, and as he gets into the bathroom, he closes the door with a sigh of relief and throws his hands back like this and looks in the mirror and discovers he has another strange power. He can see himself as he really is in the mirror. And when he sees himself as he really is, that terrible, ugly, self-centered person, he dies. Christ is the one who looked in the mirror for us and died. When he was on the cross, he died. Martin Lloyd-Jones, medical doctor, says he thinks that when the Bible says that there came from that wound in his side blood and water, serum and clotted blood, It was a heart broken, bearing the wrath of God for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Well, as you look here at Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, what do you find? You find two things that make this foundational. One is legal. And the other is personal. This is out of the love of God. And the foundation is that it is justification and adoption. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. That's what he did. And when we believe that, we are justified by faith. We're no longer under law, but we're in Christ. Christ's righteousness is reckoned to my account. My sins are reckoned to his account. Now, when that happens... At the same time we read, I'm adopted, I receive the full rights of sons. I'm not just the criminal being pardoned by the governor, but I'm the criminal being pardoned by the governor and made the son of the governor. I've often wondered how many of these governors who pardon condemned criminals would make them their sons. I think not too many. Well, the legal foundation of it is justification, adoption of her sonship, is permanent, legal, and right because it was bought by the righteousness and blood of the representative sent by God, even Jesus Christ. And so we have a legal right to be sons and daughters. What is it John 1.12 says? But as many as received him to them gave he the right, 
the authority to become the sons of God, the children of God. But then with it, if that's the foundation, but that's not the height. Justification is the sure foundation, and so is adoption, but the height of our sonship is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The gift of the spirit of adoption is the height of it. We have a personal delight in the Father and His will. Abba, Father. At Westminster once we had a young man ask to come back and speak, I think at commencement. No, I guess we just brought him back to have him pray and then others were speaking. But he stands up in front of all the faculty. We'd all assembled there, you know, we looked quite... The others at least looked all dignified. And... Uh, he starts out by praying, Dear Daddy in Heaven. I about fell off my seat. I mean, I thought, Oh, good night, Steve. Why did you do that? I mean, and so on. And, and yet, that's not too far off from what the text is saying. Now, you might not want to use that language, and I don't use that language, but nonetheless, it's very intimate and very personal, this relationship to the Father. And it's not disconnected from the cross and the atonement and the legal right because the legal right is the great love gift of God, the foundation for it. And it's that that teaches me to love the Father in spite of my sin and my shame, that I delight in His will. And every day I get up, I have to face the fact that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And the older I get, the more sins I can see in other people. Right? Isn't that the way it is? Sure, it's part of maturing. <laughs> but if you really mature, the more sins you'll see in yourself. And then the breakthrough comes when you begin to see what Packer said in Knowing God, that the heart of the New Testament message can be summarized in three words. Adoption through propitiation. Friendship with a living, eternal God through sacrifice. God, make atonement, make propitiation for me, the sinner. He cries out. He doesn't say, God, make mer be merciful to me, the man who is standing there in Luke 18, verse 13, the one who goes in the, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the one who cries out, God, forgive me. It's not be merciful or even forgive. It's make atonement for me. Give me the foundation. Give me this wonderful gift. We had, a few years ago, a woman come here to our seminar and couldn't seem to make any progress and she had something to bring out and finally she said, well, I have my background, something with my dad. I was a very young child and uh, he was a businessman and mom did his shirts on a very regular basis, white shirts. And the older brothers and sisters were out hanging them up on the clothesline. And one day I wanted to help. And I took one of his white shirts and I, I couldn't reach the clothesline. All I could reach was the wheelbarrow. And I hung it over the wheelbarrow and it was rusty. And so what I had to give then to my dad was a rusty white shirt. And he was furious at me. He was furious. 
And she said, that's crippled my relationship with men ever since. But then she asked the counselor, what, what, what do you think Jesus would do? Or maybe the counselor asked her. She said, well, she didn't know. And he said, Jesus would wear it. Because he's for you. Even though you're a sinner and you got rust in your life. You don't have to be an orphan. You don't have to be alone. Jesus atoned for your sins to destroy your living in an orphanage. The permanent impact of anger on a life can only be repealed by the power of the grace of God, but it can be repealed. Well, how do you get aboard this life of grace? How do you keep getting aboard? Well, already we've said it's a matter of faith, but how do you get hold of faith? And the answer to that has to be a severe honesty. I went, one of the men who uh, became a board member and is now a missionary in one of our big cities in the U.S., said he went, before he became a Christian, he became a member of a sort of a cult group, and they gave him a name when he uh, showed up. And I said, well, what did they call you? And he says, well, they didn't come out of the right away. And he finally says, well, they called me approval suck. I said, and he said, when I came in every day or any time I came in, they would call me approval suck. I said, you're kidding. You mean you took that as a name? And he says, yeah, that was, it was true. I was an approval suck. Well, why do I use that? Well, I think we need to become severely honest with ourselves. So often, we as believers have never seen the depth of our depravity and our self-centeredness. That if you're an approval suck, you want glory. You want Christ's glory. You don't want to be hurt. And you're a bolster and all of the other things that go with it. And I'm in there with you. I'm an approval suck. But the way up is down. The way to get power into the life is not so much by trying to get power into the life, but by being severely honest with where you really are. The woman who told me in North Carolina that this taking her into Romans didn't really help her. The reason it didn't help her, nobody put a firm label on her which would require her to be severely honest with herself. And one of the things that came to me was this. As I got older, I became more critical of people. Any of you like that? You get better at it. We call it estimating character, right? Other people gossip, but not us. And oftentimes we're our own worst enemies. You get a small group of inner people that you like to gossip about others with. And you, you don't gossip generally, but you get your juicy tidbits right here, maybe within your own relationship. And maybe you become cynical. And my tongue really, really worked overtime in that relationship. And I fed a lot of sin and self-pity into myself that I was too good for such an age. Hmm? And eventually, in despair, I resigned from the church I was serving. I despised the denomination I was in. And I resigned from the seminary with a flourish. 
because everybody else seemed to me to be proud and impotent. <laughs> wow. And out of that humbling, I eventually took back both my resignations and saw that I was the one who was proud and I was the one who was impotent and I was the one who misused the tongue and that I was the one who was cynical and God had then to break my professionalism and Rosemary, my wife, being a very wise woman, said, Jack, let's go away to Spain and you study. And I did. We studied the promises for three and a half, I did, studied the promises for three and a half months. I studied the promises like a pig. I came from a ranch and I know how pigs eat. I went after the promises like a pig, day in and day out. I went from Genesis to Revelation. And out of that, I came back a changed person. And at that time, I went out to a drive-in where there were about 50 or 60 drunken teenagers. And guess what happened? Out of the mercy of God, the worst one of the lot, as I went there with a new conviction of sin, a new conviction of the power of the gospel working presently in me, it could work in the worst person there because I was just a little bit below that person. And the worst person there was converted, had to go for about four months. He's now my son-in-law. He's now team leader in London. He was addicted to heroin, beer. He was a thief. Stole so much, it took him two years to pay it back after his conversion. I tell you, Jesus, the gospel can do it. William Romaine knew something that maybe we lost. If we're willing to be severely honest with ourselves, humble ourselves before the living God, and do not despise others, but love them from the heart, and see the power of the gospel, God will do mighty, mighty things. Amen. Go your way. Rejoice. You're worse than you think. Go your way and die because it's going to be your freedom. Go your way and preach the gospel to yourself every step. And you're going to be so happy, you're going to say, this is something, this grace. I think I can even hear a song in my soul. Let's just close in prayer. God, our Father, what sweet music there is when the Spirit makes the gospel sing in the soul. What sweet music goes into the heart when we see that, oh, what Jesus has delivered us from. We begin to see something of the cost he paid and feel the power of that touching our inner life. When we see it having objectively changed our whole relationship to the living God, oh, Father, we must turn and say, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Christ by which I am crucified to the world and the world to me. Amen.